3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. These are the news headlines. Oh, no, we're not on news headlines yet. Oh, we're not. I'm so sorry. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) We are just on top of it this morning. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And as you can tell, it's a little chaotic. Just a little bit. A little bit. Um, Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Good morning. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a week, it's a time, uh, but we're moving through it. Um, We do have a big show as usual today. We've got four live interviews for you today, plus um, some, yeah, important listening back about uh, the massacres map. So maybe we'll just jump into what we've got on for today. I'll kick it off. Um, So Professor Lyndall Ryan is an academic and historian who led the Massacres Map Project at the University of Newcastle, and she joined Maria Spasaro on Doing Time earlier in the week to talk about this eight-year-long project to map the massacres of people on the Australian frontier, which is the first sustained effort to break the code of silence on the violence of colonization. Now, we will include a content warning just before we play that. Um, but, yeah, really important thing to, um, yeah, to be aware of and encourage people to, to find out more about that. And then we'll be joined by Emma Macy Storch, who is the director of the film Geetha. And it is a film about a mother's heartfelt attempt to support herself and her daughter after an acid attack. The Melbourne's premiere is scheduled for this Wednesday, 30th of March at 7pm at the Astor Theatre, and you can find tickets on their website as well, uh, but please be advised as this interview contains discussion of intimate partner violence, assault and acid attacks, and if you need support, please contact um, 1-800-RESPECT-ALL-SAFE-STEPS. And then we'll be joined by Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, and joins us today to discuss visa and migration pathways. We will discuss the centre's recent Lives in Limbo report and the recent news that Australia will begin recognising degrees from India. Yeah, very interesting timing to decide recognising, or sorry, to decide to recognise degrees from India now that uh, we are facing various kinds of labor shortages and, uh, you know, we couldn't couldn't recognize, couldn't possibly recognize those degrees before. <laughs> anyway, um, after that, we're going to be joined by 3CR producer extraordinaire Tilda Joy, who's coming on to chat about our special Trans Day of Audibility broadcast, which is seven hours of trans radio this Sunday, the 27th of March from 12 to 7 p.m. And we're doing this in the lead up of the, tran- uh, sorry, lead up to the Trans Day of Visibility on the 31st of March. And you can find out more at 3cr.org au forward slash trans day of audibility 2022 and finally we're going to be joined by dr fiona allison who's a senior research fellow at the jambana institute for indigenous education and research to speak about the call it out racism register which was released this week by the national justice project and jambana institute and this register aims to track instances of racism against first nations people Dr. Allison has worked on national and other projects related to improving justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including in the area of race discrimination and racism in the criminal justice system. 
And you can find out more and also contribute to that register at callitout.com.au. Now, we might jump into a quick CSA and then we'll come back to you with the headlines. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 24th of March. Listeners, please be aware that the headlines contain mention of sexual assault and harassment. A study released this week reports that one in six Australian university students have experienced sexual harassment in a university setting. The study of almost 44,000 students conducted by the Social Research Centre shows alarming rates of harassment and assault in Australian universities both in student accommodation and residencies, with increasing instances online. Transgender, non-binary and female students are more likely to experience harassment, and First Nations students, students living with disabilities, and students with culturally diverse backgrounds are also at greater risk. Half of the respondents knew nothing or very little about formal reporting processes for harassment or assault. In other news, veterans and historians are calling for the Australian War Memorial to stop accepting sponsorship from companies that profit from war and conflict. According to polls commissioned by the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, there is strong support from the public for the War Memorial to cease arrangements with companies such as Lockheed Martin, the largest weapons manufacturer in the world, whose stocks have risen significantly following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In response to these calls, the Australian War Memorial representatives have so far expressed support for their corporate partners. And in news from Afghanistan, reports from Kabul say female students are being told by the Taliban administration they are not allowed to attend school until new plans for attendance in accordance with Islamic law can be formed. In a move condemned by the UN, this backtracks from previous statements by the Taliban that female students would be able to continue their studies. And finally, in Melbourne, residents of Altona remain concerned about repeated pollution incidents impacting local waterways, including a recent chemical spill that is expected to result in the deaths of thousands of fish. More than 12,000 litres of chemicals were recently spilled from a site that stores agricultural fertilisers, and though a company has claimed responsibility and expressed concern for the incident, local residents express anxiety about the ongoing lack of risk assessments for industries operating in the area. Residents say they have been advised to avoid contact with water in the area and predict the waterways will take a long time to recover. So these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 24th of March. And just a reminder that if you did feel distressed by any of uh, the headlines that we discussed, you can contact, you can contact 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. But also, you know, if you're feeling affected by that report on sexual harassment in universities, you can also always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. I mean, Inez, it's a pretty 
pretty severe indictment of the university sector, hey? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, being, I also worked in university and it was just constantly um, always front of mind and it's really difficult to report and having to go through the entire process and ongoing re-traumatization, it is incredibly difficult and the barriers um, never really end and being able to even make that step is a huge commitment. Yeah, and I mean, I think, um, you know, that the the part of the report that does talk about the, the barriers to reporting is really, like, you know, recognizing that is really important as well because I think, you know, students can feel, and especially, um, you know, especially international students can feel really pressured to, you know, not speak up, um, not raise these concerns. And then when we look at the way that various institutions operate, um, you know, in terms of, providing litigation uh, support and funding to to protect people who have sexually harassed students. Um, it's really important to disrupt these power imbalances. Um, something else that I wanted to mention in the headlines is just, a, you know, congratulations, Ash Barty, for calling time on your career. Yeah. It is, I mean, it's a really... Uh, it's a really difficult call to make, but I think we've seen some incredible leadership from people like Ash Barty and Naomi Osaka being like, no, I got to, you know, put my health first. Um, and, you know, I've given so much to, to this sport, to tennis, and it's time for me to take a step back. So massive kudos for that. Yeah. Um, we might jump into another CSA and then we'll bring you to that first interview. A proud black man. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial or you might be listening uh, via streaming. I don't think we ever plug that, but you can stream 3CR live at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So, you know, take us wherever you go. Um, and also, if you don't have a radio, that's that's how you're listening. Um, so we're going to jump into our first interview for today. And this is a replay of an interview done by Marisa Spasaro on the Doing Time show on 3CR earlier this week. Professor Lyndall Ryan, the academic and historian who led the Massacres Map Project at the University of Newcastle, joined Marisa to speak about this eight-year-long project to map the massacres of people on the Australian frontier, which is the, quote, first sustained effort to break the code of silence on the violence of colonization. This map is not definitive because so many massacres were hidden and people have never talked about them, but this is the first time that we have a national map that has a clear method of investigation although the true picture may never be known because the code of silence about massacres has been universal. Now, just a content warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this audio does contain information about acts of violence that may cause distress, and we do encourage people to call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114 if you do feel that you need to discuss this further. Now, we'll go into that interview with Professor Lyndall Ryan. Professor Lyndall Ryan is a First Nations woman and researcher at Newcastle University. Best known as a historian of the Australian colonial frontier, her first book, The Aboriginal Tasmanians, in 1981, broke new ground in arguing that contrary to widespread belief, 
the Tasmanian Aboriginal people did not die out in 1876 or at any period in history. It's lovely to have you, Lyndall. I'm wondering if you could talk about the new evidence, and it's stage Mm -hmm. four, isn't it, of the project? Yes, it is. I've been working on the project now for eight years, and the research team feels that they have made the case that uh, frontier massacres were widespread across colonial Australia. And perhaps uh, what is different about stage four is that we have more than 400 massacres listed right across Australia. That's 400 massacres of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And in all our research, we've managed to find 13 massacres where colonists have have been killed uh, in a massacre on the frontier. So we're looking at a a very big difference between more than 400 massacres of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and only 13 of non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's a big difference. Perhaps the other big difference we have is that Stage 4 reveals that after 1860, uh, when the pastoral settlement moves into northern Australia, that the massacres not only increase, but we're getting more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being killed in massacres. Uh, that's largely because there's a, uh, an increase in gun technology. New kinds of guns are invented which can shoot further and kill more people with one shot. So after 1860, the massacres actually get worse than they were before 1860. So the intensification of the frontier massacres was completely unexpected for the research team. We thought that the numbers of massacres would actually decrease and possibly fewer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people killed, but that is not the case. So that was a a kind of um, rather shocking finding for us. And perhaps the, 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 the other important finding was the fact that we were able to identify 19 cases where that we would call genocidal massacres, where uh, a, a party would go out looking for Aboriginal people to shoot and they might stay out for several weeks and they might shoot as many Aboriginal people that they could find. And often that would be up to half a dozen massacres would happen in that time. So the massacres intensify, they get worse, and they're more likely to be genocidal massacres. So it's not a very positive picture to present of our past. Absolutely. And in all honesty, I'm not surprised that the Aboriginal massacres have increased after 1860. What leads you to say that? Can I be frank? Yes, of course. Well, I, as I, I've been doing work with Aboriginal media for many years, and yes. one of the things that has really emerged for me is the incredible genocide and uh, that's happened, and deaths in custody, stolen generation, um, and it's just taken a bit of a sh- different shape now. You know, yes, civilization yes. has 
yes. become more prominent. Yes. And in my in my study as as well um, with speaking to different elders, I've managed to look at a lot of their stories and have a look at the history about what's happened and and the way that um, the military and and the police and the Australian government and the missions have treated Aboriginal people. I I'm I'm simply not surprised. I I just think that it's it's inevitable that those massacres were increased. So I have to say to you, I'm not shocked. Okay, okay. That's very interesting. I guess as a historian, where I look at things chronologically... Sure. I, I felt that... Tell uh, me more, well, yeah. Well, uh, when you're looking at issues chronologically, you do get a sense of uh, people's ideas and what they're thinking about... And as we learn more about Aboriginal people, we think that uh, as we get to know people better, we'll, we'll probably behave better. But that in this case, that's certainly not the case. So I guess another important factor is that as the massacre's gone, we find that it's more likely to be police um, and what we call agents of the state involved, uh, that while uh, uh, we know that there were a lot of settlers who carried out massacres, but we find that the agents of the state are there from the outset when you've got British regiments uh, using their soldiers to control the frontier, but by 1930 you have um, mounted police are really running the show. So there's not a big shift in the kinds of perpetrators over time. So that remains. So the agents of the state are very important in how things happen and also in imposing the code of silence uh, so that we don't find out very much about what is going on. You have to work very hard to lift that veil of secrecy that is there from the beginning and the veil becomes almost like concrete after 1860 and then trying to break through that has been probably the hardest thing that the research team has had to do. Professor Lindo, I think you've just answered your own question as, as to why <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> yes. yes. You've answered indeed. your own question as a historian. Do you see that? Yes, I do. I because, do. And I'm not pleased. I'm not here to, to patronise your no, work. No, of course not. Of course not. Because course honestly, not. I'm, I respect you a lot, a hell of a lot, and, and I just... Um, and I respect your work. And I, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that, you, you know, you were just mentioning a code of silence. And because of that, you know, we, we couldn't, you know, the massacres simply weren't revealed. They don't want to be talked about. And also, you know, you suggest in the media release that the perpetrators were learning much more about how Aboriginal people were living. Would that, yes. would that not also encourage massacres? Well, yes and no, yes. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. But, you know, um, and the frontier is also moving much further away from the big cities where questions might be asked. You know, places like Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide, questions were being asked in the media, in the, uh, in the newspapers, what is going on in northern Australia? And sometimes you'd get some really important information, but 
every now and then you'd get a story which said, I can't tell you anything. There's a code of silence. I've tried to find out what is going on. Well, people were saying that about Victoria in the 1840s. They wouldn't talk about it. But by the time it gets up to the Northern Territory in the 1920s, uh, that same code of silence is still there. Absolutely. And one thing that I'm just having a look at here, um, just to draw your attention to it, that you say in the recent media release that there is more massacres and more Aboriginal people being killed. And you talk about um, a large massacre that occurred in Western Queensland around 1900, which targeted a ceremony of Aboriginal people. That, that, that is just blasphemy, really, isn't it? Yes, yes. And, and we've got a couple more examples like that where it is known there's going to be a major ceremony. Aboriginal people are going to come from far and wide to attend the ceremony. So the local pastoralists and stockmen get together and form a large group. And at a key point, they'll uh, go in and start shooting. So it's, um, it gets more ruthless. It's more ruthless, I think. Absolutely. And, and of course, we're not targeting um, anybody here. We're not targeting individuals. This is all about systemic, systemic genocide and racism, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. It was, they believed they could do it. They didn't necessarily believe that they were doing a bad thing because they weren't being questioned about it. But on the other hand, they were keeping silent about it. So it's a you know, it's a two way thing. Everybody knew it was going on, but no one would talk about it. And that's often the case with massacre wherever it takes place in the world. Uh, the massacre at Srebrenica in Bosnia in 1995, for example, even though there were lots of people around and UN peacekeepers in the village, it took six weeks before information came out about that particular massacre. And, and you know, that's one of the most recent that we know about, and it happened in Europe, and people were just shocked that A, that it happened, but B, that it took six weeks to find out what had happened. So I think you can write that very large in Australia. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was an interview uh, with Professor Lyndall Ryan, who's an academic and historian who led the Massacres Map Project at the University of Newcastle and joined Marisa Svasaro on 3CR's Do in Time earlier in the week to speak about this eight-year-long project which mapped the massacres of people on the Australian frontier and which is the first sustained effort to break the code of silence on the violence of colonization. Now, if this did raise any distress for you, we do encourage you to call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And, yeah, it's just a really important project and really important initiative to map the extent of colonial violence and harm and, you know, the foundations of ongoing harm that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face today. Before we begin, please be mindful that today's interview discusses themes of intimate partner violence, physical assault and acid attacks, a topic that may be just distressing to our listeners. And if this interview doesn't feel safe to listen to at this present moment, feel free to return after 15 minutes. 
And if you or someone you know is experiencing distress, please contact 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or Safe Steps on 1-800-015-188 when you are safely able to do so. Thank you. So today we are joined by Emma Macy Storch, the director of the 2022 documentary Gita. And the film has been described as a vibrant, raw and honest film about a mother's heartfelt attempt to support herself and her daughter after an acid attack. It is set to premiere in Melbourne this coming Wednesday on the 30th of March at 7pm at the Astor Theatre in St Kilda. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no, of course. Thank you for um, taking your time out and speaking about such an important um, film. Would you mind maybe starting us off with what the film Geetha is about and why you and your collaborators felt it was important to make? Um, yes, great. Um, the film is about Geeta and her daughters um, who live in Agra in India. And when Geeta was only 19 years old, she had already had three daughters, um, disgruntled by the fact um, he wasn't getting any sons. Indrajit, Geeta's husband, snuck into the room and while they were all sleeping one night, he poured acid over them. And his intention wasn't aimed to punish but to kill so he could remarry and have sons. And um, basically, he had the support of his entire family and his neighbourhood. So, but the story of Gita is kind of, it goes beyond this this horror story of the attack and and really is about what happens next and Gita's incredible determination to rebuild her and her daughter's lives, her belief that girls deserve to um, have a life free of violence where they can thrive, become independent women and break out of um, dependencies on husbands and families. And so the, the film is really about this 28-year year journey to make that happen for her daughters, and especially Neetu, who was blinded in the acid attack and is actually here in Australia. So essentially, um, even though Gita is part of a much bigger movement of change in India, the story is about everyday activism and the hero, heroism that creates change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really, um, really moving. And it's difficult when um, a movie like this is, you know, showing all the intricacies and how deeply entrenched casteism and, you know, gender is in India, but also how it prevalates throughout the world. And from yeah. what you're saying, it seems like, you know, Gita is the film Gita is about overcoming violence and the power of love and everyday strength that creates grassroots change. And I think also, what do you believe maybe people would expect from a film like this? And how do you believe the film was able to subvert these tropes? <laughs> so I think, you know, we've been um, making this film for the last, um, you know, been in production for about seven years. And I think that the thing that we often hear as we're, we're talking about our film is that people might worry that the film will be too confronting or hard to watch or... They question whether, you know, the story about an Indian woman in the urban slums of Agra has relevance in Australia. And I think what's beautiful about how this film has turned out is that it's probably everything but that. It's kind of universally relevant. And, you know, I think the people will be very, very surprised um, what the story actually is because the acid attack happened nearly 30 years ago and, you know, Gita and her daughters found their power, their 
you know, they're part of a nationwide movement for the prevention of acid violence. They've been on hunger strikes, changed laws, stood up to bullies and defied the odds in every way to kind of chase their dreams. And, um, you know, and then you've got the kind of everyday sort of things that we'd recognise as well, Gita arguing with her daughters over how much time they spend on Instagram or <laughs> me too dreaming of meeting Oprah one day. All these things where, you know, I think we can often think, oh, what does a victim of such extreme violence look like? You know, they're, they're vibrant, funny, alive people that have overcome this trauma to chase um, bigger dreams and make change in the world so I think it defies people's expectations in that way um, yeah I, I certainly our journey um, as we we're filming like we couldn't have predicted in the seven years we've known Gita and me to all the twists and turns but even for us it was like whoa how's this happening oh what <laughs> it's just constantly um, you know lots of unexpected stuff so yeah yeah, I think um, it's really important to remember that these people are still uh, people at the end of the day and they have yes. um, joy and love in their hearts as well as a lot of strength. And even though they have overcome, you know, a lot of trauma that is the result of systemic violence of gender, class and caste, I think there's also often misconception that a person has only really exercised power and agency uh, when they've actually left a violent relationship, when we know that that's not true and that power can be exercised within the confines of the relationship when it's possible and that is not a weakness. And I think you've spoken about it a little bit before. Um, how do you, how think, do you think that you've seen um, Gita and her daughter's power um, evolve, change, and I guess contradict throughout the filming? Okay, so, I mean, the first, one of the most surprising things, certainly for us as filmmakers, which we we realised very early on, was that when we went back to Gita Nichu's house, um, the perpetrator, Indijit, was still living with them, and we realised that there had been really big judicial failures in the judicial system, which is a very common global experience. And I was sort of very aware that, you know, I think... Um, statistics in Australia are that a woman tries to leave a violent relationship eight times before she succeeds and that there are just so many barriers for um, people trying to leave violent relationships, custody issues, um, not having their own finances, safe houses being at capacity or, you know, in the case of India, not actually existing in many areas. Even if a friend takes you in or a family member takes you in, after a few months, there's a sense of dependency and disempowerment and feeling like a burden. The judicial system's slow and, you know, if if you're an immigrant woman in Australia, then there's um, their visa status can mean they're not eligible for uh, to access services or, um, you know, they're threatened with their visas being cancelled by the perpetrators. So sometimes the choices are limited and I think this is why... You know, the why didn't she leave should be reframed to say why couldn't she leave. Um, you know, Gita, in a similar way, she spent two and a half years getting her husband in prison. She rented a room and tried to be a single mum, but very quickly realised that there were other threats to her and her daughter's safety from the community around them. So Gita's story, I think, is really about absolutely this kind of 
um, the real revolution that sort of happens inside families and neighbourhoods um, to create change. So, you know, her getting up every single day and trying to take one step forward towards her dream to empower her daughters and that long fight um, is just uh, so compelling and, you know, just in awe of Gita, but I think it's the truth of so many women and children going through uh, this kind of situation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. The I think the long fight is very important to recognize, and also how people shouldn't have to be strong. There should be systems that are set up to support. Um, but it would Definitely. be it would not um, it would be important to still recognize somebody's strength in doing that. And I think also what is really beautiful about the Shiro's Cafe in India, which I know that both Gita and Nidu and the daughters are have been interacted with, which is a cafe community in India that's run by survivors of acid attacks. And the cafe, you know, aims to increase awareness of acid attacks and empower acid attacks, uh, empower acid attacks survivors, sorry. Um, how how has uh, interacting or being part of Shiro's helped support Gita and her daughters on the journey? Well, this is, like, really interesting question because actually... Um, the creation of Shira's Hangout was very organic. Gita and Nitu, like, it's, it's existed for eight years. Mm-hmm. So in their 28-year journey, it's only a small part. But um, what was happening was that Gita and Nitu were still fighting for their independence through other means, but they had luck in that they met someone on a bus who told them that there was this stop acid attacks movement in Delhi, and they got on a train and they went and because I was so fascinated that there were other people like them and people lobbying for change. And while they were there, they took part in a lot of protests, got to know the organisers. And um, it was proposed to them that they could move to Delhi and the movement would look after them. But Gita was very um, sort of... She didn't want to just take charity. She she said, it's really important to me as a survivor that I have my own choices. I don't want to go from one situation to another situation of dependency and weakness, (laughs) disempowerment. And so actually it was Gita's idea to, she sort of proposed, why don't we set up a a cafe or a tea shop where um, I can work, my daughters can work, but also other acid attack survivors can work and we can um, earn our own living and that will be the best thing for all survivors. So in a sense it was... um, it, it came from Gita, this idea, and so they just thought it was brilliant. They did a fundraiser, and I think it started with uh, five acid attack survivors, including Gita Nitu, and very, very quickly it it got known overseas, tourists that, you know, were coming, I think, before the pandemic. They had, on average, you know, thousands of visitors a week, and through the um, cafe they were able to raise more funds that help pay for the rehabilitation and surgeries of a hundred other survivors. So it now employs, I think, 30 full-time staff. And I think for Gita and Nita, it was just this amazing experience that um, small actions create huge change. So often they tell me, you know, that just five of them have managed to shift the the 
perception of acid attack survivors in India. They've changed laws. They've connected with the world, um, given visibility uh, to their issue in the world. So they see huge differences from seven years ago when it started, huge differences just in people's attitudes towards them, yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, cafe is such an incredible way to uh, support self-determination as well as... um, you know, knowing that this was built by acid attack survivors for acid attack survivors and also knowing that they've been able to, yeah, change laws and, you know, employ other people so they can also have rehabilitation. I think being able to know that they will know all the intricacies of what people need and being able to listen to that and support that is really important. And I think also, um, Emma, just for the final question, how do you believe that we can support acid attack survivors? And I guess also is there anything else you would like our listeners to take away from this conversation? So I I think um, the main thing I'd really love uh, the listeners to take away and also um, from the film, uh, from this conversation and from the film, Mm -hmm. is that change is possible and we don't have to feel hopeless. And I hope that when people see the film, they will see that what Gita and me too, they, you know, they lived in a one-room place with a canvas Roof, and they've managed to create so much change that there is hope. We all have this power within us to to really um, help. Um, in terms of you know helping attack survivors, I think one of the biggest actions um, anyone could do is get behind Shira's Hangout. Um, there's lots of the campaigns online uh, for donating. Um, you can just do a Google search to find. Um, their, their website and all these donation portals. Um, they, you know, they offer all sorts of programs. So you're really, really supporting grassroots um, support if you if you donate. Um, the other thing people can do is Nitu Gita's daughter, who's in Australia, she's about to launch a special campaign called the Wake Up Campaign where she's looking to work with young people all over the world to use her story to teach them how to advocate and lead change. And the message is that generational change is possible. So people can find out about that, um, N-E-E-T-U, middle slash campaign.com if they're interested. And, of course, like, um, you know, um, knowing the story, knowing... Um, what people like Gita need to go through um, is the story of millions of women. So come see the film and, and really understand it is is good. I think to helping create um, change. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Eva, for joining us here today. And just again, knowing that this is a important film, and also it's just one person's story, and this happens across the world, not just in India. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today and taking your time out. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. And feel free to go see Geetha at the Melbourne premiere this coming Wednesday on the 30th of March at 7pm at the Astor Theatre in St Kilda. And the interview also discusses themes surrounding gendered and intimate family violence. If this was distressing, please contact 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732 or Safe Steps on 1800-015-188 when you are safely able to do so. And also for translators, please call TIS on 131-450 and ask them to call on your behalf. Thank you. 
3CR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing seven hours of trans and gender diverse radio in the lead up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday the 27th of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics and everyday transgender lives towards a transgender day of audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au slash transdayofaudibility2022. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Hey, you mob. It's simple, everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus, like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible, and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And now we are joined by Matt Kungle, the CEO of the Migrant Worker Centre, to discuss the centre's recent Lives in Limbo report and the recent news that Australia will begin recognising degrees from India. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Matt. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Maybe we'll just start off because I know there's so much to cover. Um, Maybe I'll start off with the report because I think it outlines a lot of the issues that we have seen with visa and migration pathways. We know that the migration policy encourages migrant workers to sign up for an Australian education, even though an Australian education does not guarantee permanent residency. And the process, on average, takes five five years to 13 years. And, you know, I know that student visas are also some of the most approachable, as long as you can afford the tuition fee. And a lot of people that um, do come to Australia um, are on a student visa, and most of them have also already completed a tertiary education before coming here. So there's a lot of nuances there. Um, would you mind maybe speaking on why these degrees are not being recognised in Australia and what barriers this actually creates for international students? Yeah, sure. Look, um, there are several reasons, I guess, why they're not being recognised. The first is a chauvinism rooted in the racist thought that unless you receive your degree from a white, wealthy university or in a white, wealthy country that you what you've learned or how you've learned to be some way inferior, and of course that's plainly false. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is because our visa system is designed to prop up our education market, and it's one of our largest sectors that relies on a steady stream of new students, um, either reskilling or taking mandatory tests to, and courses to bridge their qualification gaps. Thirdly, there are other issues around, you know, diplomatic issues around reciprocity. Um, that is the, rest, the recognition of Australian degrees abroad, and some aren't recognised in India um, and other places around the world. And, you know, there are, all, uh, there are many others, including the vested interests of some of the professional associations that act as the assessing authority uh, for degrees in their industry and keeping people out of their industry is obviously a vested interest for some of those um, very high-skilled, high-paid industries. Um, 
Failing to recognise just prior learning or forcing people to go through lengthy processes means that international students can face challenges to enter into higher-level tertiary study, um, you know, going into those higher-level degrees. But I think that what we need to remember is that this is more than just international students. Um, if you allow me, by way of anecdote, I was at a comedy show a few years ago and I got talking to the security guards and they were a father and son from Iraq who'd come to Australia as refugees and... The father was a renowned engineer in, in Iraq and had designed many buildings and, and many bridges, and he showed me on, on his phone. He was very proud of them. Um, and some of which, he said, had probably been destroyed by, you know, Australian armaments during the war that he fled. And while a local university knew who he was uh, and were allowing him was allowing him to give talks to his engineering students, he was not allowed to practice um, as an engineer in Australia. And for him, that's a huge difference, you know, a difference between a minimum wage a security guard and an engineer's salary. Um, and or, or, for example, another one, um, I first met a man called Gamal who worked uh, when I was working at the cleaning union and he was a renowned lawyer in Sudan uh, and he had spent much of the last 20 years as a cleaner in Chadston. And while cleaners and security guards make really important contributions to our society, they're not nearly paid enough, uh, not paid nearly enough to do it. And I think the question for the listeners is, Imagine what the lives of these two men, their families and the thousands like them could be if they'd been able to apply themselves in the trade in which they were um, trained. Um, and not just that, but imagine what our society, our community could be if we could really get um, everybody you know, working in the, in the areas that they're, um, they're skilled in. I mean, the government should be doing way more to ensure the skills and talents of all workers in Australia, not just those from India are fairly recognised. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that, you know, this is not just a... Indian Australian issue um, that it is it will affect all migrants ref, like and just knowing that you know that a conditional visa like a student visa will promote insecurity and vulnerability in Australia and I know even the report um, states that participants on temporary visas experience I think like 64% experience wage theft and then additionally one in four have experienced other forms of labor exploitation and not being able to be in the trade that you need uh, trade that you've already trained in and no recognition of prior learning can be incredibly difficult and also I guess maybe would you mind speaking on what are the current barriers to receiving support for labor exploitation while on a visa particularly student visa yeah, you know, just before I, I, I go there, I think I'd like to ask, um, you know, we need to ask ourselves why this announcement's been made about this new dialogue between India and, and Australia. Um, mm-hmm. And the federal government's faced some really extended backlash from Indian Australians and the international student community. And for the last two years, but particularly at the start of the pandemic, the government sent very strong messages to Indian students that they weren't welcome here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also subjected Indians to extraordinarily punitive measures, including the threat of jail um, during the travel ban period. So, I mean, the move, this move could be seen as a ploy to kind of temper that discontent in the lead up to, you know, domestic issues in the lead up to the election. Um, but it's also, you know, could be seen to try and placate the major educational institutions who are screaming out for a return of international students. Um, in part because the government's continued cuts to higher education mean that without international students, many would just, many universities would just simply fall over. Um, but sorry, just to return to your question, yeah. um, the, the visa system we have in this country is broken, or you could say it's acting exactly the way it's designed to, um, which is to create a hyper-precarious class of workers who are bound so closely to their employer, uh, they're forced to make a difficult choice between their residency and their workplace rights. Um, like the not-so-new phenomenon of 
permanent casuals in the workplace, we see a rise of the permanently temporary migrants. And this is because people are stuck on this treadmill um, trying to find a way to become a permanent resident. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that um, is to try and, you know, become an international student, learn new skills, move into a skilled stream where you are bound to an employer and you can't work for anybody else um, if the employer is not treating you correctly or treating you poorly. Um, you end up, you know, having to choose between, uh, as I said before, your whether you assert your workplace rights or whether you, um, by doing so, you put your, your residency at risk. Yeah, I think knowing that if you are locked into an employer and your your status in Australia is locked into it, uh, makes you incredibly vulnerable and difficult to speak up. And, you know, we've seen lots of news across the university sector during COVID, as well as knowing that, you know, a lot of international students also experience sexual harassment. Um, there was a recent study that was recently released, and just knowing that there there aren't a lot of, there are there isn't a lot of support, and there wasn't a lot of support from university sectors during COVID. And then now that they want to boost their economic prospects, now they're being welcomed back. And I don't, I think, yeah, it's, as you said before, it is important to question why this move is being made in the first place. Um, I know that. Yeah, that sorry, so, you know, just on that point, I mean this. This has been a real shocker for, um, for the country. Like the, in, the higher education sector, sector has become so reliant on international students mm-hmm. because of the neoliberal cuts to hi- higher education. Um, and what we're, what we're really seeing here is there were some great reports, like you, you pointed out. I think it was called if, as if we were not human. I think the report was called out of um, out of Sydney last year. Had some shocking results, and um, you know, not just about. Uh, not just about what was happening to international students, which was quite shocking, and the wage theft that kind of came along with it, um, but also just the sentiment from um, from people about how they were treated, not just at the unit by the universities, but by you know people in their workplace, but also more broadly in, in society. So I mean, there's there's this great kind of undercurrent of racism that kind of you know is the prevailing um, and dominant kind of thread that pulls all of this together. Yeah. Um, I think even the notion of the skilled migrant um, is set up to fail and cause an us versus them and lots of, yeah, racism is the prevailing cause here <laughs> and yeah. that hasn't really gone away. And I think also um, there's a lot of like logistical issues, there's vulnerability, there's wage theft, there's, uh, you know, difficulty in sponsorships, all these things. But what is also important to remember, as you've said, with being like temporarily permanent or Mm. Yeah, um, is that it seems like, you know, a lot of migrant migrants workers also have no other choice but to stay in Australia because the migration system prefers young people who have an Australian education and Australian work experience, making many migrant workers spend most of their young working years in Australia on temporary visas and being away from your country of origin, losing a lot of those social connections and then, you know, having to pay international student fees, working full-time, trying to pay for that on your own. Um, I think all of that is really important, and being here for, like, your entire work, young working years can have a, a huge impact on you. Would you mind maybe speaking on what are the effects of spending, yeah, most of your young years on a permanent, <laughs> on a temporary visa that ends up being relatively permanent on for, away from your country of origin? difficult for me to speak to that having not done that myself, yeah. but I can tell you that from the responses to the survey, uh, and we did, you know, over 700 people responded and we did more than 50 in-depth interviews, that 
um, people that live in Australia on temporary visas, uh, some of, as you said, at the very top for up to 13 years, live in a constant state of stress. Um, there's many years trying to build a pathway to permanency only to have the government change the rules or an employer change their mind about a sponsorship or you get fired or the company falls over or um, it's difficult to stay in a regional area for personal reasons or, you know, just the fact that people need to find a way to support themselves without the same social safety net that's there for Australian citizens. So what we need to do is we need to reform our migration system into one that provides a real genuine pathway to permanent residency for those migrants that want to stay in Australia. Because what's happened too much in the last 20 years is we've the, the pendulum has swung too far away um, from permanent, res, uh, permanent migration towards temporary forms of migration. But as I said, what we see now is people who are permanently temporary because they're constantly trying to find that very, very slim pathway to permanence. And you're right, many people spend all of their 20s and some of their 30s just trying to become permanent. And for many, you know, if they aren't successful and they have to go um, back to their, to their country of birth, they've missed 10 or 15 years of networking and building connections and their family might have moved on. Like, it's a really difficult prospect and it's a very stressful thing and we see that in the results of the report. Yeah, I think knowing that the permanent residency takes five years on average, that's sometimes up to 13, probably longer, but then also knowing that the permanent visas are so tightly controlled that it is just a constant state of temporary or, you know, having your life in limbo. Um, I think, you know, I think when you were taking away from this conversation, we've obviously discussed a lot here. Um, how do you think that we can further support the education and employment and well-being of migrant workers and students? Yeah, it, it's tricky. Um, I think one concrete thing people can do is, you know, take the, the next step when they're hearing news reports about people on visas. Um, because the system relies on us not understanding just how unfair the system is. So it's very easy to hear 482 or 887, 192, 196 as just numbers. But for migrants, those numbers are absolutely everything. They mm -hmm. are where you can live, who you can work for, how many hours a week you can work. Our system currently benefits business at the expense of the wider community, and we all need to start turning up um, with migrants and supporting their struggles. And I guess... Um, Cheekily, I, if there's anyone out there who's particularly fired up this morning about this and wants to get in touch, um, they can head over and find us at migrantworkers.org.au and we'd love to have a chat to them. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for such an insightful and uh, important interview. And given the recent news, it's always, you know, I think all of our listeners are very critical, but um, being able to know that there's also actions that people can take is really important as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining great. us here today, Matt. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was an interview with Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, who joined us today to discuss the visa and migration pathways. We discussed the centre's Lives in Limbo report and the recent news that Australia will begin recognising degrees from India. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are just about to hit 8 AM. And we are joined by Tilda Joy, who is a 3CR producer extraordinaire, coming on to chat about our special Trans Day of Audibility 2022 broadcast, which is seven hours of trans radio this Sunday, the 27th of March, from 12 to 7 p.m. in the lead-up to Trans Day of Visibility on the 31st of March. Tilda, hello. Good morning. Hey, how are we doing? Oh, you know, uh, chaotic as usual. How are you? Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, my alarm just went off on my phone right now. It's started speaking. <laughs> yeah, I heard, I heard that buzz, and I was worried that the line had cut out, but it's okay. It's all good. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay otherwise. Um, yeah, really pumped for this weekend. So glad we get to do it again. Obviously, we had one um, last year, the binary busting broadcast around this time of year, and um, yeah, so glad we're, we're bringing it together, bringing the band back together again to um, do this. Um, at 3CR, um, such an awesome opportunity, and you know, so many great trans voices and producers already here at this this station. Um, it's it's great to have a day to kind of just just focus on um, on on that, on the like great spread of, of um, trans talent we've got in the station, and um, yeah, um, just just come and show what we've got. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it is really. Um I don't know. It's really lovely to be able to have these spaces to uplift, um, you know, trans experiences, but also trans people's like skills and interests and, um, you know, technical wizardry and audio production um, across this day as well. Because, yeah, I mean, it's been a God, I mean, it's going to be said about every year, but it's been a <laughs> tough year uh, in terms of, you know, being a political football. You know, I'm feeling I'm feeling a little sore, um, but yeah, I don't know. I was wondering if you if you wanted to speak to to the importance of you know having this dedicated programming and um, you know what that what that kind of means and, and provides to our community. Yeah, you're, you're right, Priya. It's been a really tough time with like religious discrimination, bill, you know, here in so-called Australia, um, going along, and that we're coming into an election cycle, and that is going to absolutely continue to be an issue. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to clear my throat. It's early in the morning for me. Um, and, 
yeah, like it's going to be a really rough time, and I think this kind of gets back to the whole idea of having Trans Day visibility in the in the first place. Like it was started as a response to Trans Day of Remembrance, which is about mourning um, lost trans comrades, um, and uh, this is supposed to be about kind of like celebrating and making visible, um, you know, trans lives and um, and things like that. So I think it's kind of important. Um, point for us to, to rally around um, as we go into this election, which is going to be ugly. You know, neither major party has really any supportive policies for the queer community, let alone trans people. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I think a really good opportunity to kind of celebrate that. Um, and, yeah, that's not to say that it's going to be like completely devoid of politics either. There's some really um, great programming, like Sassy Sidek from uh, Behind Closed Doors is going to be doing a a show on three generations of um, trans migrants to Australia, you know, and talking about their experience of, you know, uh, migrating to Australia and, you know, whether that actually brought a better life or not and, and things like this. So it's, it's not all, you know, fun and games. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, it's going to be great. I'm finally getting to uh, do a music show at 3CR. I normally do, like, politics and, and union shows and, and things like this. Um, and I'm just getting... Um, an hour to an hour and a half, depending on how the um, the playlist is finalised, just to spin some discs and, and play some music, which I'm just really pumped about. Like, um, I've always wanted to do that. And <laughs> yeah, nice. um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it on a personal level. There, just like showing off you know, some of my favourite songs and some really great, you know, trans musicians. And um, yeah, so yeah. No, that's super exciting, and also you know, showing off the fact that trans people have impeccable taste. Um, yes. <laughs> which, yeah, no, I, I, I really love it because I think also like a lot of the public conversation about trans people, I guess, um, you know, comes back to rehashing trauma and, you know, questions of, um, you know, where, you know, like fi- fighting for rights, questions about bathrooms, questions about use of public space, about schools, all these kinds of things that actually be able to center discussions that are about, you know, joy and creativity as well are, are so important. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, you know, just as a sorry, I've just this is this has been uh, bothering me for for the whole show. And just uh, want to say if uh, if Anthony Albanese is listening, um, mm-hmm. please, you do have uh, the opportunity to, to step up and, and, you know, speak back against what's being splashed across the Murdoch papers, unless you said that and believe it, in which case, you know, as you were. But um, just want to remind people that men actually can uh, have babies. So, um, yeah. yeah, so just, you know, at, at any time, you know, please feel free. Feel free to, <laughs> to, to make a comment. Um, to make a comment on that. But yeah, it's um it's really important to find these spaces of joy and expression um during particularly difficult times, um, you know, considering yeah, that trans people have been have been picked up and especially trans young people have been picked up as a as an issue um in in the um election lead up. And I think it's also really exciting to be able to, yeah, like model the kinds of cool stuff that we get to do for young people that might be interested to, in getting into radio or in getting into discussions about politics, in getting into union politics and everything like that. Just being able to yeah. show um, younger people um, that they can do this, too. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the great things about how it's played out this year is that just 
it's falling on a Sunday and there's just so many trans presenters on a Sunday anyway already. Um, and I think the really lovely thing about that is that um, it's we're, we're always here. We're always part of the world. We're always, you know, pretty much everyone knows a trans person who is a, an important part of their lives, you know, and um, we're, yeah, I think it's just really great to have a day to just, like, pause and just say, like, hey, we're part of what makes 3CR what 3CR is, and we want to celebrate that. And I'm so just so glad that the radio station for a second second year running has just been like, yep, let's do it. We can we can actually do a, you know, seven-hour block of just, just trans presenters talking about trans issues and trans, trans lives and all that. Um, it's just such an amazing kind of thing to to happen and just to continue to happen. So so glad that station found the you know time and resources to make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, gutted not to be uh, not to be a part of it this year. But I will definitely. Um, I um, that's not to say that Tilda didn't invite me, but. Um, <laughs> It's just that I can't do it this year. But you you might want to listen back to it. Gotta finish that PhD, babe. Oh God. Um, <laughs> I mean, hopefully. Well, actually, by the I'm hoping to have it submitted by the next uh, Trans Day of Audibility slash Visibility. So yep. I'll definitely be doing it then. But if if people yeah, want to we'll listen be back you a to it, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll have I'll have all the time in the world to just talk about trans stuff. Um, but I do, I do reckon, um, you know, if people want to listen back to the one that I did last year, uh, you know, feel free to go to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting broadcast because that's where you can, you know, to pump yourself up for this Sunday's listening. You can have a listen back to some of the, uh, some of the other things that we had on. And, um, Tilda, where can people find out about what is on for this weekend? Sure. Um, we've got a, uh, like a program schedule up on our website, 3cr.org.au slash Trans Day of Audibility 2022. That's where you can find out um, the main things, but also just um, follow 3CR on all our socials, uh, Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We'll be, um, uh, yeah, shouting out about, um, you know, in a bit more detail probably, you know, what each of the programs are going to be, and um, I'll be in the studio live tweeting on the day, and, um, yeah, um, so stay tuned. Yes. Um, and is there anything else that you wanted to plug or anything you wanted to say before we wrap up? Um, yeah, uh, I also work at Transgender Victoria and we are doing um, a fundraiser at the moment to fundraise some of our kind of like peer support activities and um, and you know, just operational kind of things. Um, if you've got some money to give at the moment, um, head over to um, tgv.org.au and um, uh, yeah, you might want to um, contribute to our fundraiser there because um, you know, we're doing good work for the community and it'd be really nice um, if you got some spare money to help us out with that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tilda. And yeah, really encourage people to tune in this Sunday, the 27th of March from 12 to 7 p.m. to catch our Trans Day of Audibility. All right. Awesome. Take care. Thanks for having me, Priya. Bye. Take care. Bye. And that was Tilda Joy, who came on to talk about our special Trans Day of Audibility 2022 broadcast on 3CR Community Radio. That is seven hours of trans radio this Sunday, the 27th of March from 12 to 7 p.m. in the lead up of trans, to, to the Trans Day of Visibility on the 31st of March. And again, you can check out those program details at 3cr.org.au forward slash Trans Day of Audibility 2022. Now, as Tilda said, um, you know, you can definitely feel free to also 
also go and donate to Transgender Victoria for the excellent work that they do to support our community. And I really encourage people as well to keep donating to and sharing that GoFundMe link to Beyond Bricks and Bars, which is an excellent, excellent initiative, um, you know, led by trans people, led by the incredible Whitgari, um, which provides support to um, our trans community members who are incarcerated and often incarcerated, um, you know, in prisons that don't align with their gender. So adding, you know, that additional misgendering in the everyday to the effects of being incarcerated and you know, this this work is so important to to make sure that people are supported um, both while they are incarcerated and as they go through processes of release and parole, making sure that people are set up to, you know, come back into the community and, um, you know, feel safe, feel like they are a part of the community that cares about them and being resourced to do that is so important. So you can look up Beyond Bricks and Bars on GoFundMe to support that vital work. And um, it is 8.11 a.m. on 3CR. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, it's the simple everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus, like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yemen Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And you're back on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, or you might be listening via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. It is 8.13 in the morning, and we are now joined by Dr. Fiona Allison, who's a senior research fellow at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. And Fiona joins us to speak about the Call It Out Racism Register, which was released this week by the National Justice Project and Jambana Institute. And this aims to track instances of racism against First Nations people. Dr. Allison has worked on national and other projects related to improving justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including in the area of race discrimination and racism in the criminal justice system. Dr. Fiona Allison, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, of course. Um, it's really important to be able to have you on in this week to talk about this. Yeah. And, um, of course, we've got you on to speak about Call It Out, which is that register to report racism and discrimination experienced by First Nations people, which was launched um, and uh, which was chosen to launch on the 21st of March, which is the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about that decision to launch it on that day and how this relates to this year's theme of Voices for Action Against Racism. Yep, sure, Priya. So, um, so that date, the 21st of March, uh, each year marks the day in 1960 that police shot and killed um, South African protesters in Sharpeville. So that was the Sharpeville massacre. Um, and these predators were demonstrating against apartheid laws. The UN introduced um, a week of remembering starting on that day, um, remembering that event, but also sort of aimed to bring people together in solidarity to support those impacted by racism. So just acknowledging what that day is actually about. So by launching the register, call it out on this same day, so March the 21st, um, we were hoping to draw attention to the massive problem of racism that we have in our country, and that is racism against our Indigenous people, who would have to be the most impacted peoples in terms of racism in Australia, it would be fair to say. Uh, this racism has, you know, a very long history and is still extremely prevalent today. So uh, our sense is that there's really not enough awareness or acknowledgement of this in, in Australia at the moment. And I think also we were keen to place uh, Indigenous experiences of racism in this international context. So we, you know, we're recognising that this is a huge problem internationally for so many people around the world. But the point of this particular register or mechanism is to record Indigenous Australians' voices in particular um, on this issue. So this hasn't been done before. This is the first time that there's been a register purely dedicated to First Nations experiences of racism. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of voices of action, uh, we're hoping that this, the evidence of racism that we're collecting can then be a tool for advocacy and activism to challenge this issue, and I guess particularly for and by Indigenous people. And, and I think this, um, you know, we have seen in the past two Indigenous people drawing on the international movement against racism, so... Um, it's kind of fitting to put it in that context as well now. So we saw, for example, in the 60s, Charlie Perkins uh, drawing on the experiences in the US, with the US civil rights movement and um, leading the freedom ride in the 60s. But again, kind of adapting that to highlight what was going on for Indigenous people in Australia in terms of racism. So yeah, it seemed like a fitting time to launch it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is really... Um really important to make sure that we have these conversations that are focused at the kind of intersection of racism and of indigenous sovereignty as well. Um, you know, looking at the specific kinds of racism that are connected to, you know, the dispossession of indigenous land and the way that, uh, you know, that original violence of, uh, you know, colonization yeah. continues to perpetrate, um, perpetrate harms and reproduce stereotypes and discourses about Indigenous people that have become, um, you know, so horribly normalised in so-called Australia. Um, so yeah. you've already spoken a bit about what the register is and what it hopes to achieve. I'm wondering what kind of experiences you're hoping to record and who can make contributions to this register? Mm -hmm. So at the moment we've got, um, so there's three different 
I guess, types of reports that can be made. One is uh, Indigenous people reporting their own experiences of racism. The second one is someone reporting on their behalf. So that could be, for example, for a younger person who might encourage an older person to report on their behalf. And there's also um, capacity for witnesses of racism against First Nations people to report that. So that means non-Indigenous people can report, but they need to be reporting about First Nations experiences of racism. Um, What we're going to do is also, or we're already doing, because we're already getting um, some reports in, quite a few reports in, we're collecting data on who the person is that's experiencing the racism. So we might ask, we're asking about their location, their gender and age if they want to identify that, and also some details about the perpetrator. And it's important to say, I guess, that all different types of racism can be recorded. So there's often a focus on interpersonal experiences of racism and race discrimination, including in in surveys on this issue. And we've also found that in talking to Indigenous people about racism. So this is probably because there's still so much blatant and interpersonal racism going on, and it's obviously really important to highlight it. But we would say that's just the tip of the iceberg, and we've also got capacity in the... um, register for people to report institutional racism, which is also a really, really major issue. So the register will guide people to answer specific questions about things like being unable to get a job or a rental or being vilified, being followed in shops by security guards, that sorts of, those sorts of issues that we know are really prevalent, but we also want to record um, more systemic issues if, if people are able to, to put that into the register. And there are, speaking of the differences, you just raised that, there are also some questions in there or the option to identify a breach of Indigenous cultural rights, which is obviously something that's going to be particular to Indigenous people. Um, So discrimination is obviously not just about being treated differently, it can also be about being treated the same as others. So, um, you know, failure to recognise the different situation for Indigenous people. Um, There's some questions in there about the impacts of the event or issue being reported. And we've also got a question in there asking people how they have responded to this issue or event. Um, I know that the UN this year is also focusing on recognising those that call out racism and acknowledging the challenges of doing so. So um, Indigenous people face massive challenges in, in calling out these issues and we're hoping the register can overcome some of those barriers. So that could be, for example, fear of retribution. Um, so that certainly occurs when people want to uh, raise complaints about racist policing practices, but it can occur in other contexts as well. Um, and this can be quite a well-founded fear. I guess we saw how Adam Goods was treated by the public when he called out racism. Um, it can get pretty nasty. The platform is anonymous, so the published data will be de-identified, but it still allows for a space for accounts of racism to be seen and heard. And I guess the other thing I'd say is that um, we're not setting this up as an alternative to uh, initiating a legal complaint. We think it's really important that Indigenous people exercise their legal rights if they choose to do so. But again, there's a lot of barriers to using the legal system to initiate a complaint and to see it through, including because people don't know that they can or they're not comfortable with the process or they find it difficult to submit a written complaint. So we're also kind of thinking through ways that this platform might address that. It might kind of uh, set some system up whereby if people choose to, their, their report of racism can initiate a formal complaint um, and they could be linked in with some advocacy to support that. Um, the other thing is those the laws are limited, so not every experience of racism um, can actually 
constitute a formal complaint. So this is another way for people to name or call, call out racism that they're experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's so important to sort of have that breadth um, that this register appears to, to, to provide because, you know, I think thinking about the differences that you spoke about in terms of interpersonal versus institutional mm-hmm. racism and just, you know, the horrific uh, information we've had come out lately about the extent of um you know, healthcare, like racism mm-hmm. uh, in the healthcare yep. system with rheumatic heart disease most recently, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, looking at issues around um, police and policing and exactly. um, questions, you know, I think of the family of Auntie Tanya Day, um, you know, trying to raise that question of systemic racism uh, in Victoria police um, and, yeah. you know, looking at um, looking at institutional cultures that might I guess, militate against uh, addressing these kinds of questions internally. I think it is so important then to have this external register for people to be able to keep a record of um, of these instances. And I really like the, um, the fact that you're looking towards opportunities uh, for complaints to be registered and support to be provided formally, yeah. Um, potentially. Yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, look, the institutional issues are just are just massive. And, and Indigenous people will call out racism in, say, in relation to, say, death in custody, but it just doesn't get, yeah, doesn't get acknowledged um, within legal institutions and otherwise if that's what it is. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out in the register anyway in that space. Yeah. I, I guess it's that kind of question of um, really legitimizing and validating the sort of common knowledge of racism against yeah. Indigenous people, which you know, it's it's an open secret in this country that there is a massive problem of racism, both in general, but specifically, you know, the 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 whole founding of the country being based on racism against First Nations people. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah recording that and and you know, mounting advocacy on the back of it is is really important. Yeah. Now, um, Speaking of that racism issue, uh, listeners might be familiar with the Howard government's decision to water down explicit discussions about racism on the 21st of March and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, turning it into Harmony Day in Australia. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the relationship between how we talk or don't talk about racism mm-hmm. and then how we actually take action to eliminate it or be actively anti-racist within, I guess, a systemic culture that um, prefers to look the other way. Yeah, sure. So I think that was a probably a really neat attempt at trying to remove um, what is the ugliness of racism. Um, so I guess when you talk about an aspirational land of harmony, um, also what you're really doing is taking out of the equation that there is a perpetrator of racism, and that is you know potentially broader society or government or whoever it is. Um, so it's really just an example of further denial of the issue. And also, I guess I'd ask, I'd question whether that is what all Indigenous people want. Is it harmony? Um, you know, there's probably more discussion and louder discussion about wanting truth and justice in the context of racism than harmony. So, yeah, probably a bit of a, a whitewash. And I think if we can fully understand Indigenous experiences of racism, then we're going to be better equipped to respond to it. It's really, really important. It's a really good question to ask. So that may include taking responsibility uh, for the problem in ways that include, you know, ensuring there's better accountability of government systems to avoid racism or ensuring the broader public understands their responsibilities, for example, under racist discrimination laws. I think we've all got a part to play in addressing this issue. But I guess we're especially hoping that this data will 
equip Indigenous people who are already leading or are keen to lead change in this area with resources and evidence to do so. I mean, you know, it's going to yield quantitative data, so it's going to yield statistics, and that's going to have its limitations in some sense, but I think they can also be really powerful as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, it seems it seems so, I guess, in a sense, frustrating that there needs to be such a robust substantiation of, um, you know, of these claims of racism, which I guess we know anecdotally to be real and severe and to cause, you know, serious impacts on people's lives and their quality of life. Um, but it is uh, so important to you know, in, in an environment where evidence has to be provided to this degree to have a register like this. So, um, Fiona, just to wrap up, where can people find out more about the register and make a contribution to it? Okay, so it's if you go online to callitout.com.au, um, it's fairly easy to find and you just walk yourself through the questions. Um, there's also a map in there that we've put up um, where you can kind of see where the complaints are already coming through. And if people don't want to fill it in online, there is a resources tab. Um, if you go into that, there's actually um, the form can be printed or filled out um, on paper and then emailed into us. And there is some assistance in filling it out. There's a number to call if people need some help um, to go through the, the register questions. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And um, appreciate the work and look forward to seeing how it develops. Thank you, Priya. Thanks for having us on. No worries. So that was Dr. Fiona Allison, who is a senior research fellow at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, joining us to speak about the Call It Out Racism Register, which was released this week by the National Justice Project and Jambana Institute. And this register aims to track instances of racism, both interpersonal and institutional, and I guess also systemic, against First Nations people. And Fiona has worked on national and other projects related to improving justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including in the area of race discrimination and racism in the criminal justice system. And again, you can find out more and make a report at callitout.com.au. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday the 27th of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics and everyday transgender lives towards a transgender day of audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au slash Transday of Audibility 2022. We are coming up to the end of the Thursday breakfast program, and we might just let you know what you have heard about today. So, first of all, we replayed an interview with Professor Lyndall Ryan, an academic and historian who led the Massacres Map Project at the University of Newcastle with Marisa Sbosaro on Do and Time earlier in the week. And then we were joined by Emma Macy-Storch, who is the film director of the film Gita, um, and you can find tickets to the Astor Theatre um, on the website. And then we were joined by Matt Kunkel, who's the CEO of the Migrant Worker Centre, who spoke to us about the Lives in Limbo report and that Australia will be recognising degrees from India. We then spoke about the Trans Day of Audibility with Tilda Joy. And finally, we were joined by Dr Fiona Allison to discuss the Call It Out Racism Register. We'll speak to you next week. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.